Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut with your host, Rebecca Coombs. On today's episode of the Healthy Gut Podcast, episode seven, I'm joined by Dr. Leonard Weinstock. Dr. Weinstock is board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine. He is president of specialists in gastroenterology and the Advanced Endoscopy Center. He teaches at Barnes Jewish Hospital and is an associate professor of clinical medicine and surgery at Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Weinstock is an active lecturer and has published more than 70 articles, abstracts, editorials and book chapters. He is an investigator at the Sundance Research Centre and has participated in over 30 research studies. He's currently researching the role and treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in restless leg syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome and rosacea. And he joins me on the show today to talk about restless leg syndrome and rosacea, particularly in correlation to SIBO. I myself suffered from restless leg syndrome for years and didn't realize it was all to do with my gut. So I hope you enjoy today's show, episode seven with Dr. Leonard Weinstock. Dr. Leonard Weinstock, welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thank you so much, Becca. It's great to have you here. I first met you at the SIBO Symposium this June in Portland, Oregon, which was wonderful to hear you speak at the symposium. And I was uh, really lucky to be able to spend a few minutes chatting to you and also gift you one of my cookbooks, which was great. And I enjoyed that. Yeah. It's It's a beautiful cookbook. Thank you. I'd love to, to start with your story. How did you end up in, uh, with an interest in gastroenterology um, and why you're interested in um, SIBO in particular? Well, my flight towards gastroenterology started with a strong background in internal medicine. I felt that internal medicine just gave somebody a uh, viewpoint of the person as a whole uh, like no other, whereas surgery was very limited and pediatrics was their own little thing and uh, GYN was their own thing. But internal medicine just covered so much and it um, often brought into these interesting differential diagnoses of patients who have been suffering with conditions for a long time. And that's what I found with GI, that there were many people who had unusual disorders and so many of the gastrointestinal disorders were called syndromes. And that just really intrigued me because 
I thought when I went to med school, oh, everything is a textbook and it's all going to be spelled out. Well, when it comes down to things, so many things in gastroenterology are syndromes and they're real mysteries. So I like to think of myself um, as trying to solve mysteries because I've enjoyed uh, detective shows and so forth. And uh, that was one thing. And then the other aspect is... uh, you know, you do things, you do surgical techniques uh, as well. So if there's a gastrointestinal bleeding, you're not just ordering the test, you're actually doing the test. So for me, that is a combination of the both thinking skills of medicine and the surgical techniques that makes it all happen. And I think that anyone that has suffered from gastrointestinal issues uh, can appreciate the detective mode in that uh, often one has to play real detective with uncovering what is going on with them. It's so true. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit about what, why you uh, then also got interested in SIBO. Well, SIBO uh, was fascinating because for years I've been talking to patients about irritable bowel syndrome and so fascinating to me that there could possibly be a condition that 15% of the population has, but we don't really know exactly what's causing it. So uh, for the first uh, half of my career from 1985 to 2000, it was just a matter of waving my hands and saying, oh, we think it's a you know reaction to food and your gut is hypersensitive and the nerves therefore are abnormal and there could be stress. And all this kind of... Um, hand-holding and hand-waving, if you will. And then um, during that latter part of those 15 years, I became interested uh, really in motility and uh, irritable bowel syndrome and was asked to be on a uh, support group, um, on an internet support group for irritable bowel syndrome. And so I was the uh, pharmacology expert and would give input on that and um, on new cha- new new treatments and so forth. And somebody asked me, well, what about the uh, article that came out in 2000 for bacterial overgrowth and um, the treatment with neomycin and getting better from irritable bowel syndrome? And I actually had the American Journal of Gastro on my desk, ready to read, and I hadn't gotten to it, so I immediately turned to the article. I said, now, that is interesting, that you could actually get rid of um, irritable bowel syndrome with an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, it was a real uh, remarkable um, uh, thought. And so I started treating empirically patients uh, for... uh, with the antibiotic and seeing some good responses. And then uh, there's some written information around that time about doing a breath test. And uh, I didn't have access to one but uh, in my office, but there was a, a little hospital that had been doing breath tests for quite some time. So I started ordering them. And that put some science to what I was doing. And so uh, I started treating with neomycin and then later ciprofloxin and metronidazole, and some patients would get a dramatic response. Nothing else had worked before. They'd get a dramatic response, they'd relapse, I'd retreat them, 
and then they'd wean off uh, their response and, and would not uh, have the marked improvement that they once did before. And so um, my interest waned a little bit, um, but then it was peaked dramatically when uh, Cefaxin or Rifaximin was introduced into our country. And then I went to a uh, educational meeting about that and learned about uh, how this drug was not absorbed from the GI tract and it was uh, working mainly on the gut bacteria in the small intestine because of its properties being able to work through bile where the uh, small intestine had bile on the surface and you could get through this uh, bile layer with the antibiotic and it treated many different kinds of bacteria, uh, and um, that the cool thing about it is that it didn't have a resistance factor like other antibiotics. It operated in a different way. So that was exciting. And then at the meeting, uh, it was also discussed that it had a role in another condition called fibromyalgia, which I think many of your listeners know about or have. And that the um, breath test abnormalities were even greater in the patients with fibromyalgia. Um, and so at that time, I was taking care of a relative who had post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome and restless leg syndrome. And this whole concept of post-infectious uh, irritable bowel syndrome came out, which we'll talk about later. And I asked my cousin whether he had um, acquired the restless leg syndrome after the irritable bowel started, and he did. And then I started reading about fibromyalgia, and 20% of fibro patients have restless leg syndrome, which is much more than the general population. So I started thinking, well, was there a relationship here? Could, uh, if fibro patients had... Uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, could the um, patients with restless leg syndrome have the same? And so I treated him and he had a dramatic improvement um, in the restless leg syndrome using the cefaxin. And that started my interest in looking at things outside the gut and basically getting back to internal medicine uh, where I had interest in looking at how the body is affected and where does this stimuli come from. And um, so that's, that's how I got, it, got started. So um, I'd, I'm interested to know, I think it's fascinating that, that your journey and interest and, and uh, you know, what's really interesting is that it's looking at the whole body and, and realizing that there are connections between one condition and, and potentially another. And I'd love to know what you commonly see in your practice and who, who are the types of people that you're regularly treating? Well, uh, on the office side of things, a gastroenterologist will often treat irritable bowel syndrome and acid reflux disease and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Those are the top four. Um, 
causes for unknown, causes for pain and bloating, that brings things up as well. And nausea is a, is a big category of illness. And in the morning, most gastroenterologists are doing procedures and uh, doing colonoscopy and uh, looking for polyps and, and causes for diarrhea. So these are some of the things that a gastro does. With respect to who comes in with irritable bowel and what they are like, um, I see more and more of second and third opinions uh, because they're often dismissed. And this is one of the things about syndromes and patients that bother me in our society and in the doctor's approaches is that many patients you know, come in, their condition isn't easily understood. It's not like hypertension where you can try one drug or another and you can do one test or another to say which kind of hypertension they have. In uh, Up until recently, with both breath testing and a special blood test, we haven't been able to dissect uh, the patients out from this big pie of irritable bowel syndrome into different spe specific pieces. So, for instance, if I can take a syndrome like irritable bowel syndrome and view it like a pie and slice out a portion who have it due to SIBO, then I feel, okay, I can treat these people very specifically. If it's uh, gluten sensitivity, take out a portion, put it aside, and work on that with diet and so forth until you get to this idiopathic or conditions of unknown where the same set of symptoms are dealt with by all these people in the syndrome. But if we can get out of our global view of irritable bowel syndrome as one unknown and, and stop treating them as if there's you know, nothing you know, specifically wrong with them, then we can start getting um, ahead in how we treat our patients. And I just think that's music to my ears. I was one of those patients for years going backwards and forwards to doctors uh, complaining of digestive com uh, complaints uh, and being diagnosed with, you know, that, that broad sweeping term, you have IBS and there's nothing we can do about it. Just deal with it. Stop being stressed and be careful with, with what you eat. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's something I lament on as well that that people unfortunately still today are uh, being given a sweeping diagnosis with not much assistance on what they can do about it. I'm really interested to know if there are any figures around, you know, this, this piece of pie, whether we, there are stats on, uh, you know, how many people with IBS are due to SIBO and how many are due to gluten sensitivity or other conditions. Is there any research around that we can kind of classify that, piece of pie? Yes. Um, so if you look at the data for um, this new antibody test, because um, work has been done recently showing that there's an antibody in quite a number of patients with irritable bowel syndrome and, and diarrhea, um, that it is looking like uh, up to 60% of patients with IBS-D, irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, have an antibody. Um, and this 
goes back to this whole idea that some of our patients, in fact, perhaps many of them, have post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. So just to put that concept into uh, facts, it's a 7 to 30% chance that when you get an infection with a bad bacteria, that you'll get post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. Never had IBS before, but then sometime after, usually three months or more, you'll get irritable bowel syndrome. And so um, with this antibody testing, anti-vinculin and uh, anti-CBT4, there's evidence that these antibodies destroy the um, myenteric plexus nerves, the nerves that are running alongside and into involving the small intestine. And if you lose those nerves, then you're losing the contractions at night that keep our small bowel clean. So if we damage the cells, uh, interstitial cells of Cajal with this antibody, you lose the migrating motor complex, the sweeper wave that keeps the small bowel free of bacteria, and then you're at risk for getting bacterial overgrowth. So uh, studies have been done suggesting by statistics uh, and projection that up to 60% of patients have IBS um, due to this autoimmune condition. Which is interesting because if you look back at um, breath test uh, results, um, between uh, 40 and 60% of breath tests were positive in patients with IBSD. And so that is sort of a one to one correlation there uh, that now makes sense. We just had to um, deal, however, with the problems of the breath test that it's not very specific and there's a lot of non-believers in the medical profession and the research community um, because of certain aspects to uh, how sensitive it is uh, that it just seems to be too non-specific. But with a blood test looking at an antibody, that gets to hard data that can be really looked at very clearly. Mm, definitely. And it's such a shame that here in Australia, we don't have access to that test yet. So hopefully one day soon, we are able to to do that test here as well. But it is available in America. And I, I don't know if it's available anywhere else in the world. Do you know if it's available in any other countries? Not to my knowledge. Mm. Um, in terms of other pieces of that IBS pie, um, who else makes that pie up? What other conditions can cause that? Yeah, so, okay, so certainly food sensitivities, um, whether they be specific or nonspecific, certainly um, there are some celiac disease patients that can be uh, labeled incorrectly as irritable bowel syndrome because the symptoms are so um, uh, similar many times. Uh, but hopefully we've taken them out of that idiopathic pie. Uh, Gluten sensitivity, uh, I think, fits in it because um, most, in general, we don't have any biopsy proof that gluten sensitivity 
clearly exist. Now, there's some, uh, I've seen some electron microscopy where uh, people have gluten sensitivity, they don't have celiac disease, and yet if you look under this extremely high-powered microscope where you're really only looking at a couple cells at a time, it's so high-powered, you can see these little uh, vacuoles or little balloons near the lining, um, suggesting that gluten sensitivity is a real disease. But at this point, I would say 2% of the population has gluten sensitivity. And there can be other symptoms that go along with it, including headaches and fatigue as well. Uh, other aspects. Well, I think that the, the nerves are abnormal in many patients who have irritable bowel syndrome. We, we do see uh, mast cells, uh, MAST cells, that are deposited in the lining of patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And we see other inflammatory cells that come in to the lining. So I think there's an inflammatory type irritable bowel syndrome, uh, which is where I think some of my patients who have failed many things get better with low-dose naltrexone because it reduces inflammation, in particular lymphocytes. Um, so mast cells, I don't think, have deserved, have received the attention they deserve. And um, there are some nice studies showing that the closer the mast cells to the nerves, the more pain a patient would have with irritable bowel syndrome. And mast cells um, release a variety of chemicals like histamine and uh, tyrosine, which activate the pain sensory fibers. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, that may be some of the reasons why we're, we have specific food sensitivities, uh, especially in irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, food, obviously, in your book is well demonstrated, plays a big role in SIBO in terms of what we're feeding our bacteria. Okay, um, so if you feed your bacteria um, that you've got in excess too much um, carbohydrates and undigestible um, sugars, they're going to have a feast and cause bloating and gas. They are, and uncomfort, <laughs> uncomfortable symptoms as well. Right. Now, uh, finally, you know, I think there are patients where they have these abnormal nerves. Now, are they inflamed or, or just abnormal for some other reason? Perhaps some tract in the brain, in, in the brain gut um, tract is off, off kilter, but we have this visceral hypersensitivity at the heart of many patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, so that so you stretch the colon, you stretch the small intestine, and then you're um, going to cause problems um, with pain. Um, again, that could be going on at the same time bacterial overgrowth is going on. So you, you increase your gas production, you stretch out the small intestine uh, before the gas is able to travel to the colon to be expelled, and it takes longer to get absorption of the gas in the small intestine so it stretches out and those nerves get activated and cause problems. 
So it's really a, a bit like a, a vicious cycle in that if the gas continues, the nerve damage can continue, which can lead to more motility issues, which kind of keeps going around in circles by the sounds of things. Yes, I, yes. And then, of course, we step towards, well, what else do bacteria do? And um, they cling on to the uh, small intestine lining. The small bowel doesn't like, it's not used to having bacteria there. So it really is not used to have these toxic bacteria clinging on. And then a lot of these um, cells, uh, bacterial cells, uh, cause damage to the lining of the intestine and increase intestinal permeability, so-called leaky gut. And uh, when that happens, then other chemicals, food antigens, or bacterial byproducts get in there, and that stimulates the lymphocytes uh, to ultimately produce inflammatory proteins called cytokines, um, and draw in other inflammatory cells causing inflammation. And then that damages the lining of the intestine, which then has a vicious cycle of its own, becomes leakier, more gut uh, toxicity comes in, and more inflammation starts. And this is where I think the gut starts reaching out to other parts of the body. And it may be a lot of what you're going to get is what your biological makeup is. So if you've got a certain genetic makeup or phenotype, um, you're more likely to get one disorder versus another. Mm, but, and, I, and but, I, yeah, but I've seen, but I've seen you know, uh, one of my first patients who came in, you know, had all the symptoms, you know, it was one after another, you know post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, then uh, then restless leg syndrome, then fibromyalgia, then interstitial cystitis. And it's just one after another, every two years, she got a new syndrome. And um, she actually was able to, we were able to reverse uh, virtually all of her problems with antibiotic therapy and then ultimately with naltrexone settling down the inflammation. Wow, that's that's fascinating. And so what what is your approach when it comes to when a patient presents for the first time in clinic and they're in a in a bad way? Um, you know, what what do you commonly see from someone that is complaining of um, irritable bowel syndrome and then how do you approach their treatment? So, IBS is generally defined as abdominal discomfort. Uh, three months or more per year with associated changes in the bowel frequency and form and with partial relief of symptoms with elimination. And I say that partially because that doesn't really account for all of the um, patients with uh, small bowel symptomatology because those patients are having issues um, with distension and bloating and ultimately if there's enough acidity that um, is created by the bacteria um, it may cause contractions and increase output of fluid and then they get diarrhea 
or as we've gotten to know over the last uh, um, 10 years that if they're making bacteria making methane they get not only get bloating but they get constipation so my um, history taking is really important in terms of defining their syndrome seeing how bad their bloating is seeing if it's visible bloating as opposed to just feeling distended because um, if they're not visibly bloated um, that somewhat decreases the likelihood of SIBO, but not entirely. Um, and on the vice versa aspect of that, abdominal bloating can occur without SIBO just because it's a relaxation of the lower abdominal muscles in response to pain. And so you relax the muscles, that helps um, alleviate some of the discomfort in general. So there's a couple of different mechanisms for bloating. Um, asking about the type of gas that they have, how malodorous is it, um, are they having any uh, passage of the gas uh, chemicals into their mouth with bad breath or chemicals that are actually coming out into the urine. Those are important questions too. Then the workup I do is perhaps um, not you know what everybody does, <laughs> I would say. Uh, we actually do quite a bit of breath testing to get a feel of how severe the abnormality is. Um, if, um, if we've got a very high peak on the um, hydrogen, those patients can be tough to treat. We know that they may need um, several courses of therapy or drawn-out courses of therapy. Um, motility may be a, a big issue, and that's where um, getting the, um, the blood test could be helpful, that IBS check, anti-vinculin could be helpful. Although I find that actually to be even more helpful when I've had patients who have been re relapsers, frequent relapsers for what I think should have worked to say, okay, maybe it's not this post-infectious autoimmune disease. If it's not, what is it? So do they have some other disease that is associated with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, such as scleroderma or pseudo-obstruction or adhesive disease? I'm quite interested in the uh, comment you made about that bloating doesn't necessarily mean it's SIBO. And something that I hear from people quite frequently is that they've they've treated their SIBO, they've received a negative breath test, but they're still bloating. And they're um, feeling particularly uncomfortable and, and embarrassed about that because no one wants to look pregnant when they're not, man or woman. Um, so what what would be your advice uh, to somebody li that's listening to this podcast that is still bloating even though they have successfully, at this point in time, treated SIBO? Well, there are, there are other causes for it, okay? Um, so that's, you know, something that you need to be uh, to think about air swallowing, uh, gastric outlet obstruction, um, s small bowel adhesions, um, um, diseases like pseudo-obstruction, although those, that uh, is often associated with bacterial overgrowth. Um, air swallowing can be a tough one. I mean, there are people who have nervous habits of taking gulps, um, 
drinking out of the bottle water and um, gulping down water with it. So that air, uh, which is, you know, uh, typical atmospheric air, does not get absorbed very well by the small intestine. So that that's an aspect. And then finally, irritable bowel syndrome without bacterial overgrowth can be associated with pain. And again, it could be uh, just relaxation of the gut wall to deal with pain. It's kind of like undoing your belt buckle when you're uncomfortable. It makes a difference. It gives more room for the organs to move around. Mm, definitely. And, and I'm, I'm really interested in this, this uh, sort of gulping air or, or drinking from a bottle. Is that just literally when you're drinking from a water bottle that you can be taking in air? Or is there something that people are doing specifically when they're drinking that, that causes the air to, to uh, go in? Well, it's the glug, glug, glug. When you hear the glug, glug, glug sound, that means air is going in. And if it doesn't come out as a belch, then it's going to stay in your gut. Ah, okay. Interesting. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. And it's something, you know, I've at times have been known to, you know, gulp down drinks. Uh, but my mum uh, can't. She just takes sips. And we've always teased her about that. But now now I think that's probably a good thing that she's just sipping her, her liquid. <laughs> so it's, yeah, she's prim and proper and, and taking <laughs> sips and not running around. Sure, that's, <laughs> that's good. And also not potentially swallowing air, which is good for her. Um are digestive disorders and, and discomfort on the rise, or is it that we're just getting more aware of them? I think there are two main factors. Um, number one, a lot of people who are sitting at home just dealing with this on their own are becoming aware that there's more reasons to complain. Um, they may have better access to health care, and so they're bringing to attention to their doctors now. Um and there's a whole, you know, series of studies showing that there are many people who have yet undiagnosed, untreated irritable bowel syndrome. With respect to causality, and could there be an increased causation for uh, irritable bowel syndrome if we just take the case of post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome? There, I think, are a couple of things. Number one. People are traveling more, and they may go to underdeveloped countries or countries where uh, cleanliness and um, safe water supplies are not at hand. And then on the flip side, if we're getting more fruits and vegetables from foreign countries, um, then it puts it as us at risk for getting infections um, because they're coming in and we're not washing our food as well as we should. And I'm interested to know whether once uh, once you get some uh, food poisoning or, or infection from a contaminated food, whether that makes you more susceptible to it. Because I've, I've found personally that I've traveled quite extensively as an Australian. It's almost a rite of passage. We leave our country and we go off wandering. And so I've traveled through Asia, South America. Uh, I lived in the UK for seven years, so I traveled throughout Europe. And 
and I've been into Northern Africa. I went to Egypt and it felt to me that every time I went away from the first time I left Australia, I would get food poisoning. I would always end up with food poisoning and I've picked up parasite infections as well. I've done that a couple of times and it, and it feels to me that I'm susceptible because nobody else that I'm traveling with seems to get sick like I do. So is it to have, am I now more susceptible because of the uh, infections I've received in the past? Well, perhaps your gut is not yet healed completely. It's one possibility that um, if you you don't have an intact um, bile layer uh, protecting your small intestine, and or let's say the mix of bacteria in the colon has been altered by antibiotics or by bacteria shifting things, you may not have the protective uh, balance in the small in the colon that you once did, putting you at risk for other bacteria coming in. And so your immunity may be altered in the setting of SIBO such that, you know, you're at risk for other insults. Definitely. And and I know that I've done all of that travel I've talked about was prior to me discovering I had SIBO and then working on healing my gut. I haven't left Australia since. <laughs> so it will be interesting to see what happens next time I travel after taking a lot of effort to heal the lining of my gut. Let's talk about restless leg syndrome. I know when I first heard about SIBO and I heard that restless leg syndrome was a common symptom, I, I felt like a hallelujah moment after years of having very annoying restless legs, uh, I now had an answer for what had happened and I no longer suffer from it now that I've treated SIBO. Can you talk a little bit about why that occurs and what restless leg syndrome actually is? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, it's the restless leg syndrome is defined as the compelling urge to move your legs while you're awake in the evening getting worse at bedtime with usually in a disagreeable uh, sensation. So it could be uh, a creepy crawly feeling, a tingling, uh, an aching. And um, with that urge to move, you'll get temporary relief. Or if you're walking, you get up and walk, you can get relief. So it makes it difficult for people to get to bed. Um, now, it may be associated with kicking and jerking um, in the evening while you're actually sleeping, um, that's periodic motor limb disor disorder. So it runs in parallel with it, but it doesn't necessarily um, mean that if you just kick your legs while you're sleeping, that means you have restless leg syndrome. Restless leg syndrome, again, is you're conscious. You know, people could be on long trips in the car or plane and they just are, have that ootsie feeling they got to get up and walk. They just can't keep their legs still. So it's very bothersome. 
and it uh, it is associated with um, uh, significant two significant problems: hypertension and stroke. There's a higher risk. So, whether that's through a sympathetic increased sympathetic nerve tone, we're not sure. But it's so it's not just a oh it, it's a bothersome problem. It it actually interferes with getting to sleep and. People can wake up and then they get have it and they can't get back to sleep. So it's a, a real problem. But what's fascinating to me is when you look at the condition, you've got primary or uh, restless leg syndrome of unknown cause. You've got familial restless leg syndrome. And then you've got secondary restless leg syndrome. And there have been 50 conditions that have been reported to be associated with and or contribute to restless leg syndrome and of which 40 are have you know been looked at to have uh, comparison to control groups so there's really very specific uh, disorders 15 different neurological disorders five different GI problems five different rheumatological problems six different metabolic problems, four, five pulmonary disorders that actually are associated with restless leg syndrome. And for years, uh, people have thought, well, there's not enough iron in the brain. And there have been studies looking at that because if the dopamine cells don't have enough iron, they don't function well. And so that gives rise to this this feeling and um and why it occurs at night uh, we're not 100 percent sure although there is some um, thought that uh, influx of iron occurs more at night in normal people and if you're if you have restless leg syndrome that's not happening but of these 40 conditions 15 have been previously tested on their own for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and all 15 have had positive tests. So like people with irritable bowel syndrome, chronic liver disease, um, pulmonary, uh, pulmonary problems, um, rheumatological conditions like rheumatoid arthritis have been associated with uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, so that really made me um, uh, exciting to say, okay, well, maybe it's all about the gut. And um, the problem is when I started looking at drug studies just aimed at treating the gut only for SIBO, I get good response, but not everybody was responding. And and there would be a limitation to how good people got. But when I started um, adding naltrexone to it, then I had better improvement. And what happened was I started looking at the literature, um, and it turns out one of my research partners in Vanderbilt had looked at the amount of um, endorphins in the brain in patients who had restless leg syndrome, and there was less endorphins in the brain. And the endorphins protected 
the dopamine cells in the setting of iron deficiency. So now what we're doing is we're treating SIBO and giving endorphins to increase, uh, in, sorry, we're giving low-dose naltrexone to increase endorphins to help get into the brain and protect the brain cells and the dopamine functioning. Um, so that's part of it. And then finally, inflammation and or immunological disorders um, with these 40 um, conditions is very common. And so we're looking at, uh, is there abnormality of the T cells? And remember I said, at least uh, in the gut, we can have abnormal T cells and conceivably antibodies can be formed by these T cells. Um, and then perhaps those are attacking the endorphin cells in the brain and contributing towards this. So a lot could be going on with restless leg syndrome. Um, but with what I can, um, have called sequential treatment, um, I've gotten very good results. We treat the SIBO first, and then we give the um, therapy with the LDN afterwards. And in terms of uh, one study that I looked at with 40 patients, uh, 65% had a markedly better and or moderately better response than uh, they did before treatment. So, um, and I, some of these patients who were markedly better were, went into complete remission, which just generally doesn't happen in treating restless leg syndrome with conventional therapy. That's so interesting, and uh, well, I, and I'm I'm kind of also living proof that once you start working on the gut, uh, less restless leg syndrome kind of vanishes. It's amazing. I used to get driven crazy at night with my feet feeling like they were just full of ants. And uh, and the worst place for me to get restless leg syndrome, which I always got, was on long-haul flights. And I used to fly backwards and forwards between Australia and the UK every year. So 24 hours of travel. And by the end of it, I felt like I was ready to rip my feet off. <laughs> I was going crazy. Wow. And I found actually as well for me that uh, my restless leg syndrome got worse when I was tired, which obviously you get very tired on long-haul flights. So uh, the sign for me that I was getting tired of a day or a night uh, was my feet would get very uncomfortable. But it's fascinating, such fascinating stuff. The other condition is rosacea. And I'd love uh, to hear a little bit more about what that condition is and its connection to the gut. Well, rosacea has different forms. It can involve, it generally involves the skin and the face, the cheeks, the chin, nose, and forehead. And it's reddening, flushing, bumps with papules or pustules, or thickening of the skin. But it can also involve the eyes. And the area of the eyes that are involved are the lids and the glands that produce the uh, mucus and the tears, the mammobian glands. And um, it should be considered a syndrome too. It's funny that they don't call it rosacea syndrome, but it is. 
yeah, another condition that we don't really know in the majority up until uh, uh, 2008. So I was reading one of my journals in 2008, and lo and behold, there was a study out of um, Italy um, where they uh, made a correlation of rosacea and SIBO, and they took 113 consecutive rosacea clinic patients and gave them breath tests. And 46% of the those patients had a positive lactulose breath test. Now, I'd like to say one thing about breath testing, that um, 10, we did a study of completely healthy patients, 30 completely healthy volunteers, and 10% had an abnormal breath test. So, you know, and yet there was no reason to expect it, no symptoms and so forth. So it's not 100%, but even if you looked at 10% positivity of controls versus 46% of the rosacea patients, that's still very significant. And I looked at 63 consecutive patients that came to my clinic for mainly for colonoscopy. I'd identify them and say, would you like to get a breath test and see if we could treat you a different way? And my percentage was about the same, too. 41% had a breath test that was positive who had rosacea. So um, in the Italian study, um, they did look at uh, age-matched controls, and they had 5% that were um, had a positive breath test. Um, so um, in their study, if the patients had a positive breath test, and they were treated with uh, rifaximin or sofaxin, um, basically for 10 days, um, they had and a relatively smaller dose than we're currently using now. They used 1,200 milligrams a day rather than 1,650. Um, they had a significant response, um, approximately... Um, 70, 70% cleared their rosacea completely, and 21% had a marked improvement. So close to 92% had a dramatic improvement if their breath test normalized. So that's pretty exciting. And at the same time, they compared them to placebo, uh, and the placebo patients, 2 out of 20, uh, worsened and the rest 18 were unchanged. So that's pretty powerful statistics. And their GI symptoms got better as well. So um, when they looked at patients who did not have a positive test for bacterial overgrowth, um, none of those patients got better. Mm. And so... Um, they, that's you know pretty good evidence that we have an effective treatment. And then I looked at um, my statistics, um, and basically um, 46% of my patients had a cleared or marked response, 25% had a moderate response, 11% mild, and 18% unchanged. And these are patients who had a positive breath test and were treated. And I'm getting similar results in patients who have ocular rosacea um, and 
And a number of the patients I see with ocular rosacea have the disease limited to their eyes, but only about 30% had a positive breath test um, in that setting. Um, so dermal involvement um, is a bit more um, significant um, and um, and yet it can play a role in patients who have the uh, ocular rosacea where you get dry eyes and um, foreign body sensation and redness of the cornea as a secondary phenomenon. Mm, how interesting. And is there... Do we understand why SIBO can lead to, or, or what the correlation is, I should say, between SIBO and rosacea? Well, it hasn't been tested, but my feeling is it's related to systemic um, cytokines, namely these chemicals that are triggered by our leaky gut that then travel systemically and if you've got a gene that makes you predisposed to having uh, rosacea, then you're going to get your skin activated, inflamed, and uh, affected. Mm. And I hear from a lot of people that they often have skin complaints uh, as well as abdominal or gastrointestinal complaints as well. So they very much seem to go hand in hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things that I used to be absolutely terrified of when I was quite unwell was that all of this was leading to cancer. And and I know I'm not alone in that fear. I hear from people all the time saying, I'm so scared. I'm, I'm just waiting for a diagnosis of cancer. Can, I mean, are there studies to show that undiagnosed or untreated digestive disorders can then lead to digestive or gastrointestinal cancers or, uh, or is it us <laughs> just being a little bit nervous and hypochondriacs? Well, I think you have to look at two things. You've got two big organs in your body. You've got the small intestine that's 15 feet and you've got the colon that's six feet of intestine. And in the colon, you've got uh, anywhere between 13 and 100 trillion bacteria in the gut. And I think, I mean, there are some studies to suggest that colon cancer can have a different set of bacteria in the colon that predisposes towards colon cancer. So I think if anything is going to increase the risk for cancer, it will be an imbalance or what we call dysbiosis in the colon. And there are many um, medical conditions ranging from Parkinson's disease to diabetes where uh, an imbalance in the gut bacteria are um, playing a role, and mainly in the colon. So um, I, I think that um, SIBO, per se, uh, I've not seen research to really support uh, risk of cancer in that setting. Mm -hmm. And how do we find out, is there a way for us to find out if we have an imbalance in gut bacteria? So there are um, companies that do analyze the bacteria. Um, you send a stool sample into a company like Genova um, and then there's Rocky uh, Mountain um, 
company. There's um, I think one other that you can send stool samples in to get a bacterial balance to see what's out of whack to see if you have a narrow um, group of bacteria that are there as opposed to a wide spectrum of healthy bacteria. Then the trick is, well, how do you treat that if you do have that? Um, and at this point, there's some evidence that the uh, FODMAP-free uh, diet can swing yourself to a healthier state. Um, I think um, the same could probably be said for a specific carbohydrate diet, although I haven't seen evidence of that, but I think it's possible. Um, and um, probiotics may or may not play a significant role just because we're talking about taking in billions of bacteria and that's thrown in a mix of trillions and um, the degree that um, those billions can make a big difference is questionable. I think that's not to say that you can't get benefit, symptomatic benefit, but can you turn your whole gut bacteria around is uncertain. Um, so I think changing the food that your bacteria are eating in the colon are probably the best ways to get a healthier mix of and bacteria. What about fecal matter, matter transplants? Do you, is, well, what do yeah, you think about I, that? I was going to say that, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's some patients who have totally refractory irritable bowel syndrome and, and changes in the gut bacteria in the colon have been associated with irritable bowel with diarrhea that that may be a, a very good future way to change it. Um, my only concern is how effective will it be? Because, you know, we do these colonoscopies, you clean out the colon perfectly, and then two days later you're having bowel movements, half of which are fecal byproducts. So it comes back very rapidly. So putting in um, healthy groups of bacteria it may require treatment after treatment after treatment to possibly to really get a foothold of this new bacteria to overwhelm your unhealthy mix. But I think it's possible. I think that it's possible that um, manufacturers of um, spores, uh, capsules with spores of bacteria where you can get anaerobic bacteria into the colon, which is really important, could be helpful. Uh, when we're taking probiotics, they're generally aerobic bacteria, so they're um, maybe not as um, likely to survive in the colon, mm. which is an anaerobic setting. Mm. Um, and just... Uh uh, just going back to SIBO, I'd love to know whether, uh, like, how often you see success cases with SIBO, and if you feel that SIBO can successfully be treated and uh, kept away for good. So, is it curable? Well, I think it's highly treatable, and some patients can be cured in time. And that is a question to be addressed with future studies. So, if we had a wonderful treatment for, let's say, the autoimmune aspect to irritable bowel syndrome with this, you know, anti-vincoolin, 
Um, then it's been shown that if you can g- get rid of the um, anti-vinculin um, by experimental means, the cells that are causing slow motility could get better. And that's where I'm hopeful that some of my patients are being treated with naltrexone, where there may be lessening of the autoantibody, um, and perhaps with herbal therapies, could get better and their nerves could regenerate. Um, In time, some people who have autoimmune diseases do get better. Uh, The stimulus to the production of them get better. So if we're aggressive in treating the um, bacteria, we're aggressive in treating the gut lining disturbance, it may lessen the production of those T-cell activities and the antibodies they're producing. So uh, what percent get better with standard uh, two-week course of antibiotic therapy? I say about about 80%. And then uh, other, the other 20%, you have to retreat, retreat, and then many of that, those get better. If they're due to motility disturbance, um, keeping it away um, by uh, medications such as low-dose erythromycin or sometimes low-dose naltrexone or pucalipride can stimulate the small intestine and keep the bacteria out by keeping the motility going. But if a patient comes to me, they've had it for 10 years, I, you know, I, I, I say, well... There is a concern that we're not going to get this into a cure, but we can control it. The diet, I think, plays a big role in getting into somebody into remission faster and perhaps keeping them there because let's say you've got uh, a situation where 90% of the bacteria in the small intestine have been killed off, but you're feeding it, you're feeding them food, um, SIBO, uh, friendly food, if you will, um, or bacterial-friendly food, um, then at some point it's going to tip the scales and the symptoms are going to be active because the, the, the number of bacteria in the gut have overwhelmed what a motility medicine can do. Mm. And in terms of the nutrition component, and it's something that I think people get very uh, they can they can get quite upset about because food is something that they can control that they're, they're eating it every day. Do you advise that people do uh, remove or or reduce their carbohydrates um, when they're treating SIBO if they're taking say rifaximum or do you <clears throat> excuse me have them on you know a, a, what would be a standard American or Australian diet? What's your approach? Oh, no, no, no. I, I do a um, low FODMAP diet, um, no um, artificial sugars um, uh, except stevia, but no alcohol sugars at all and as low carb as they can deal with, uh, especially during the first four weeks of therapy. And how long do you have them stay on that diet? Generally, about 8 to 12 weeks, and then start reintroducing uh, 
foods that they desire. But they always stay away from fructose, high fructose corn syrup, which is like gasoline to a fire. Mm-hmm. And so readily available in our processed food. Correct. Yeah, unfortunately. One of the things that I realized as I started to get well well, as I, as I worked on my health was that there were, it was not just the SIBO that I needed to address. There was other areas in my life and I, I saw it as my five key pillars to success when it came to my health. My first step was awareness. I had to start to get aware of what was happening to me. How important do you believe um, being aware is in a person's journey to health? Well, I think they have to be aware they've got a condition and that they're going to partner with their doctor in terms of getting better. So awareness that they're not at fault for this condition, I think, plays an important role. And I really like what you say about partnering with their physician. Uh, it's so important to to find people that you can work with because it's not always a quick fix in terms Correct. in terms of nutrition and we have talked about it a little bit but I, I I know for for myself when I first had to strip out a lot of foods I felt pretty angry about that how, how, what do you see with your patients are they are they happy to eliminate foods or are they often a little bit angry like I was uh, they didn't express the anger to me they, they may they they may do it at home, but they don't express the anger to me. Yeah, sure. Um, they just kind of want to know a time zone. When am I going to be able to eat pizza? You know, it's really it comes down to simple things like that. Mm. And do you feel that people can go back to what they would consider a normal diet of being able to eat a pizza or burgers or fries? Many many do. Yeah. yeah, I would say many, many do. But um, I would say um, I have got several patients who say, oh, I just fell off the bandwagon. I had more, much more fruit uh, and, and wine, and that triggered a, a flare. So I'll hear that from time to time. And that's where they've got, they're living well with the 90% clearance, but there's still 10% of the original bacterial load in their small intestine they feed it then they're in trouble Mm. and that's where i think your book i think is very helpful for people could you know come up with good diets that are healthy um for the long run Mm, definitely i i know for myself that uh i allow myself little treats here and there but on the whole i feel so much better for eating clean, healthy food that I don't really want to go back to the way I ate before. And I'm really happy to make food from scratch and, you know, to know where my food has come from and to really limit the amount of processed food that now is in my diet because I just, I feel good for it. And if you'd said to me two years ago when I first started this journey into, you know, getting well with my digestive health. If you'd said to me that (laughs) I'd be really happy to drink alcohol very rarely and not eat much processed food, I would have laughed and said, sure. (laughs) Right. Okay. In another parallel universe, maybe, but not this one. (laughs) Hmm. 
Another component that I worked on was movement. I I'm one of those people I'm at I'm lying on the couch or I'm running a triathlon and I when I was feeling very unwell my movement suffered. I'd I'd been pretty um I'd been feeling pretty flat and I just wasn't moving my body. Do you feel that there's benefit in people moving and that could just be walking or doing yoga or or it could be going and doing a CrossFit session. Um, do you see any correlation with your patients in, in whether they're being active and moving versus being sedentary? Excellent question. Um, conceivably, uh, indirectly. In other words, um, if exercise, which it does, increases colonic activity, uh, then there's less bacteria sitting around in the cecum where... Uh, retroactive movement of the stool up into the ileocecal valve could put more bacteria there and at risk for ascension into the uh, upper small intestine. So it's conceivable that that's the factor involved. Um, I haven't actually discussed that with too many of my patients, but that's that's very good. Um, Plus exercise in general just makes people feel better. Mm-hmm. It does. I know when I, uh, and for me, my exercise today, uh, these days is walking. So I've, I've gone away from the really intense exercise and I, I am a, a podcast addict. I, not only do I do my own podcast, but I love listening to others. And it's my time out when it's just me, myself, my podcast, the fresh air, and I love it. I love getting out and walking now. Fabulous. Yeah, makes me feel great. Um, the fourth component that I had to work on was my mindset because I had identified as being a sick person for my entire life because I always had been. And I didn't know how to think of myself as a well person. Uh, I also found that I was pretty negative about things. I, I've already said I was pretty angry about removing foods and feeling really like the world was unfair, that I couldn't eat burgers and fries and pizzas. So I had to change how I thought about things. Do you see that with any of your patients in terms of those that start to look at the positives rather than focus on the negatives get well quicker? Interesting. Um, I haven't evaluated that. I certainly recognize seeing patients who get well and feel better psychologically. And then there's some evidence that um, SIBO inflammation directly affects the uh, brain in terms of the cosotropin releasing factor, which then results in depression and changes in in, um, serotonin in the brain. So uh, I've seen people come in for follow-ups who have like just their GI symptoms are better. They feel lighter on their feet, so to speak, and they, uh, their color is better and they just have a much better mood. So is it direct or indirect? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure, but I think that, um, it can play a big role, um, in their own mood. So SIBO itself and the inflammation it's associated with can be associated with a uh, change in their adrenal hypo pituitary adrenal access so it's um 
hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is all important about fatigue. And perhaps if we improve that, we get less inflammation, less of the bacterial shells coming into our bloodstream, uh, that that will help in terms of uh, how they feel mm. as opposed to wishing for better health and getting better health. Mm. Yeah, sure. And the final piece that I had to work on was my lifestyle. So I had been uh, chronically stressed. I wasn't sleeping well. I was getting to bed really late. So, you know, not getting enough hours sleep at night. And I needed to readdress some relationships in my life of, of people that perhaps weren't um, the best influence on me. Um, and so I needed to do that to support my journey to health do you see any correlation between sleep or, um, you know, stress levels or even perhaps toxic relationships that people might be experiencing and uh, their ability to manage or work through a condition like SIBO? Well, in general, with irritable bowel and the abdominal discomfort, you know, the more stress, the worse the discomfort. So it's definitely a brain-gut uh, relationship going from north to south. With respect to um, rest, rest is important because um, during that time you're fasting, obviously, you're sleeping, and you're giving yourself a little more time for whatever migrating motor complex you have or can generate with medicine to get, wash the bacteria out. Mm. Definitely. And, and I, since uh, coming through my SIBO treatment, I now do intermittent fasting. So I fast two days a week where I just eat dinner and I feel fantastic for it. It really makes me feel really great. So um, that's been an interesting self-experiment for me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. It, uh, yeah, I feel I have so much more energy. I feel really positive. Um, and it's for me, I feel like on the days where I do eat two or three meals a day, uh, that I don't have as much energy as I do on the days that I'm fasting. So it's been a fascinating personal experiment of one. <laughs> Well, yeah, you've enlightened me and uh, on many aspects this evening. Oh, that's great. Uh, Dr. Weinstock, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. I have learned a lot and I'm sure my listeners have as well. If anybody wants to uh, connect with you, what's the best place for – or how, how is the best place for them to do that? Well, uh, short questions, little questions um, – if let's say they well, if they want to learn about my research, um, it's all on my email site, uh, my website gidoctor.net. That's g i d o c o t r dot net, doctor dot net. Um, and then um, inquiries, uh, as long as they're kept simple, I can handle some. L w at gidoctor.net. Wonderful. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, thank you so much for your time today. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. 
hope you enjoyed episode seven of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Dr. Leonard Weinstock. And if you're anything like me, you have just learned an awful lot about restless leg syndrome and rosacea and why they're so connected to the gut. If you would like to access the show notes from today's show or um, get any of the links that we talked about, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Leonard. And that's where you'll be able to see a full transcript of the show. You'll be able to get all of the links to Dr. Dr. Leonard Weinstock uh, and, uh, and also look at the show notes as well. So that is thehealthygut.co forward slash Leonard. Now, I absolutely love hearing your feedback. It just makes me feel so happy to be able to connect with the listeners of the show. So do leave us a review and a rating in iTunes. Um, And it also helps other people find the show. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the more likely it is that someone who is looking for help around their gut health is going to find the show. Now, if you'd like to connect with us, you can do so on all the major social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. And we are The Healthy Gut on those platforms. Coming up on next week's show, we are joined by Angela Pfeiffer, who is SIBO Guru. And Angela and I talk all about the importance of playing your own private investigator when it comes to understanding your own personal health concerns. So do join me for episode eight with Angela Pfeiffer, which is coming up next week. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or the podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. If you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast, you can make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. With thanks to Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.